So I have a question to ask. Does the word work have a negative connotation to you? Pretty much. I think for a lot of people it does. Uh, if you said that something is hard work or something caused extra work, it would be a negative, right? Generally speaking, we don't prefer extra work. We, we, we agree that there's a certain amount of work that's reasonable, but when it becomes extra or difficult, then we don't look at it so well. It can sound more like a curse than a blessing. Something interesting about how the Bible begins is it begins in the very first verse with God doing work. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And, and the first six days of earth's history, it says he was working and the seventh day he rested. And that's the first week. Uh, so we see that work is the rule. It's not the exception. Work is something God does and it's something that we are called to do. And we'll see that it's something God enables us to do. Adam, the first man, it says that God put him to work tending the garden and keeping it in Eden. So he was put to work. It wasn't just like you get to lounge around and uh, drink cold beverages and eat fruit all day. But he actually had something he had to do. He was like a gardener. You write in, in Asaph, he writes uh, in Psalm 74, 12, he says, for God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. So God's working. God's doing things. He's always active. Jesus, he didn't come to earth for a holiday, but to work. He said in John 5, 17, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. And before he went to the cross in John 17, 4, he said to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So we see throughout all scripture, work is something that's prevalent. Uh, I guess instead of procrastinating or shying away from work, we need to know what work God has called us to do. Like, what is the work that God has for me as a follower of Jesus? And it would be good for us to be able to say, like Christ, my food is to do the will of God and finish his work. It's really cool that God is working and he has something uh, for us to do, to do for him. So we'll be turning to the book of Acts. If you could turn there, it's a historical narrative of God working in and through the disciples of Jesus, a work that's continuing today. I think if you love God and you believe you want to see God working. You want to actually see it. You don't just want to hear about God doing stuff like people being changed and their lives being transformed and uh, being delivered from addictions and and problems, but that, that you'd actually see the work of God. You'd see things happening as well as experience them yourself. We all want to see something happen, but do we want God to work in us? Do we want to see that work ourselves? And in this book, we're going to see that. We're going to see God working in and through his people and uh, enable us to do his work through the Holy Spirit. So why don't we pray and we'll start. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you have done and for the work you will do. And I pray through this, this message and through this book, Father, you would do a work in each one of us that we would desire to see your work accomplished in this world, in our lives, and we would also work. We'd do our part to cooperate with you so that we could be yielded to your spirit 
and enabled to do the things you've called us to. What an amazing thing, Lord, that we could serve you, that we belong to you, and that we have a a future forever uh, to be enjoyed with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would quicken us by your spirit and you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. As we start the book, a few fast facts about the book of Acts. In my Bible, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's really God working in his people. It's written by Apostle Luke the Apostle. It covers about 30 years of early church history from the ascension of Christ to about 61 AD. And it's likely written shortly after that. Uh, So in the 60s AD, because of what's not written in it. There's nothing written about uh, Nero's persecution of the church, nothing about the death of Paul in 67 AD, or the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So because these really critical events and historical events are not recorded, it's likely it was written before those things happened. What we know of Luke is he was an apostle, he was called by God, and he was an eyewitness of Christ. He had been called by him and walked with him, saw the miracles, heard the teachings, um, witnessed his resurrection, and he also wrote, so he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. He supplied about a quarter of the New Testament text, the most prolific writer of the New Testament. Paul wrote more books, but Luke used more words. So he's a doctor. He, he knows a lot of technical things, and he shares them in a really accessible way. He's called a beloved physician, He was a devoted traveling companion of Paul. As we read through this book, we'll see many times uh, the tense changes to we. Instead of Paul did this, Paul did that, and it'll say we did this. So we know that he was there with him. Some appealing to traditions say that Luke uh, was a Gentile, but I would say the stronger evidence says that he was a Jew. And uh, this book was written as a follow-up to the the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke was one scroll. The book of Acts is the second scroll. They were both addressed to the same person, to Theophilus. We don't know much about him, except uh, John refers him to as the most excellent Theophilus, which is always in the Bible used as someone who was a ruler, had some authority. And as we read through these, I guess, technical things, That's something that I I really desire that God's word would never be, that it's just a textbook. It's just a historical narrative. It's just uh, a book that we can get some facts from and go, oh, that's cool, and isn't it neat how it lines up with history? And Well, yes, it's the word of God. But it's to be something practical and useful and applicable to your lives. It's very rare that you could pick up a novel and you could read it and just say, this is me. This author must be speaking to me. There's something I need to do now. I don't read a novel that way. If I read a novel, it's entertaining. It's maybe thought-provoking. But it doesn't make me move to do anything. I don't feel compelled to call someone or to repent of my sin or to help someone. But the Bible, since it's inspired by God, God speaks to us through it. And his spirit he, he hits us in a way where we realize like that ta- is a tap of God on my shoulder to do something, to respond in some way. 
God's miraculous power, we read in the book of Acts, that is the same power that is changing lives today. Same power that has changed many of us and is enabling us to do the things God's called us to do. Matthew Henry, he wrote in his introduction to this book, the promises made in preceding gospels here we find made good, particularly the great promises of the descent of the Holy Spirit. The powers there lodged in them here we find exerted in miracles wrought on the bodies of people, miracles of mercy, miracles of judgment, and much greater miracles wrought on the minds of people. The proofs of Christ's resurrection with which the gospels closed here are abundantly corroborated according to the word of Christ, that his resurrection should be the most convincing proof of his divine mission. So the word proof, so important as we'll see. So Acts 1, starting in verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The former account is the Gospel of Luke. I said, I've already written to you formerly about what Jesus began to do and teach. And I like that he uses the word began because though Jesus would be leaving, his influence certainly did not end when he went to heaven. His work continued through his disciples, through his word. With the promise of the Spirit, his followers would be empowered to do miraculous things. So Jesus came claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah sent by God, being God in the flesh, a revelation of God to man in a way that man could understand and see. And he went to the cross willingly, though he had done nothing wrong. He died a brutal death and was buried for three days. And after three days, he rose from the dead. And that was proof of his power over sin and over death and the eternal life that he promised to everyone. There was now evidence that he could, he would make good on that. And he says, uh, Jesus appeared after his death with many infallible proofs. That word means certain, factual, never failing, without question. There's a difference between evidence and fact. A fact is what it is. It's, it's not negotiable what the facts are. The evidence will support a fact. It seems like today less and less is considered infallible, right? Where we all have our evidence that we will appeal to to say why we believe something or not. But there are facts. Facts do exist. They may be a bit slippery and hard to get our hands on at times. Um, like if you talk about the news, well, what are the facts? Well, that's open to a lot of interpretation, isn't it? Because you're thinking about, well, which news group? What's their agenda? What's their plan? What's their background? What's your source? How do you know? There's all these questions, right? But he says, Jesus appearing to us after being crucified and being dead for three days, infallible proof, beyond question, not open for discussion, absolutely true. Evidence is something to support a fact. A fact is what it is. Evidence can be uh, forgotten. It can be corrupted. But the facts do not change. 
right? Facts don't change. It's interesting, in law, facts are not disputable. A lot of things are disputed in law. They dispute the evidence, analyzing the evidence, but you cannot dispute the fact. And so what were some of the indisputable, infallible proofs? Well, on many occasions, Jesus appeared to his disciples. They saw him. They touched him. They spoke with him. He ate food with them. There was one time where uh, in 1 Corinthians 15:6, it says that Jesus was seen alive by 500 people all at one time, many of whom were still alive and could be could, could um, say for sure, like, I confirmed, I was there, I saw him when this book was written. So you have all these eyewitnesses. It wasn't just a couple people in a closet somewhere that said, oh yeah, we saw him. And you're like, really? How do you know? Oh, well, wink, wink, we saw him, right? Yeah. No. 500 people all out in the open on a mountain. And we're going to read about that right now, where there were all these people that saw Jesus after he had been dead. And that means something. Here is a man who died, and now he's alive. And he's speaking about the kingdom of God. There's people who don't believe that Jesus came, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the Father. But they refute that in spite of the facts. I think about when Jesus did miracles. So this is in the time of Jesus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. What did the Jews try to do? It said they tried to kill him and Lazarus so that people would quit following him. So instead of looking at the evidence and saying, wow, he just raised Lazarus from the dead, they refused to believe him that he was the Son of God and tried to murder him. Thomas, one of his disciples, after Jesus had died, and all the other disciples say, hey, we've seen Jesus. And he's like, I don't believe it. Even though they were trustworthy, he'd walked with them for all those years, he said, unless I touch him, I'm not going to believe the truth. So the problem is not the facts. The problem is a lot of, a lot of people don't want to believe, right? It's a matter of the will more than the evidence. The evidence is there. If you question this, I encourage you to look into it for yourself. See if these things be true. Because in both the Bible and secular sources, they do not deny these facts. So whether we believe Luke or not, that's a different story. But here he says, this is infallible proof. We get to read about it. Verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Days after Jesus was crucified, how does it describe the disciples? It says they were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Their leader had just been killed. They knew that they also would be targets. They felt insecure, uh, afraid, and unsure of what to do. They were shocked. They had gone up to celebrate Passover, and now Jesus is dead, and his body is in a tomb. They had placed their confidence in Jesus to guide them, but without him, they lacked direction. They, they just did not know what to do. But when Jesus appeared to them, he commands them not to depart from Jerusalem. Remember, these, these men did not live in Jerusalem. They had been living in Capernaum, mostly. That's where the hub of their ministry had been. They had just gone up, like many others from 
both Jew and Gentile, to celebrate Passover. But now Jesus is telling them, okay, don't leave. It's probably the thing I would have wanted to do. Like I've gone up to the feast. Jesus is dead. I may be next. I want to get out of there. But Jesus says, stay, because the promise of the Father is not many days away. So stay here. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. I mean, why stay where danger is greatest? Why not go somewhere else? Go back to your family. Go back to your home. But Jesus tells them to stay. So what is this promise of the Father? Why don't we turn to the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11. So back a few books. John had been baptizing. So this is when before Jesus is even recognized as uh, a Messiah or a leader among the people. He had been baptizing people in the Jordan in obedience to God to reveal the Messiah to the nation. And John was a curious guy. He, he kind of reminds me of some uh, devout hippie, right? He, he's wearing a leather girdle. He's described as living in the wilderness, and he's eating locusts and honey. It's just an odd combination. Different sort of guy, but he spoke with authority and with power, and he, he, he was the son of a priest. So he had the background, right? The son of a priest, a very upstanding man. And yet here's this, this son, who's a grown man, wearing his loincloth of leather, eating bugs, and preaching repentance. Just that people are like, whoa, this is, this is different. And they would travel way out into the wilderness to hear him preach, to hear him and be baptized by him because he was, he was devout and he honored God above all. A righteous man. If there was something going on in politics, he would say what it was, the truth of God. And he was not afraid of anyone. Even the Pharisees came to him and said, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Like, who, who are you supposed to be? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. Let's get that straight. And then in Matthew 3.11, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was immersing people in water, signifying their repentance. But Jesus, he's saying, he is going to baptize you. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So in context, fire is judgment. Jesus will come bringing judgment. But he also will come um, bringing salvation and baptism with the Holy Spirit to his people. Immersion in the Holy Spirit. So John said that from the beginning. And this is the promise of the Father that um, Jesus is referring to, that they are supposed to wait to receive. So after we're born again, believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit. So either at conversion or a point subsequent to conversion, Christians go from receiving the Holy Spirit to being immersed in the Holy Spirit. And we see evidence of this, if you want to turn there, in John 20, Verse 22, very shortly after Jesus rose from the dead and met with his disciples, he had this interaction with them. It takes place before what we're reading in Acts. John 20, 
22. It says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So they were, at this point, they had received the Holy Spirit. They had been spiritually regenerated. Yet in Acts, he tells them to wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go to Luke 24 as well, since Acts is a follow-on, and it does give us some spoilers, but we will get the big picture. Because remember, Gospel of Luke was written, and then the book of Acts is written. So let's go to the end of Luke, Luke 24, and it gives us a, it encapsulates what we're going to read today. And I included the spoilers just because it's so awesome. Luke 24, verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now that would be quite a scene, don't you think? I like how matter-of-factly it's just written. It's just like, oh, they were he blessed them and he was caught up into heaven. They're like, right on. And they went back to Jerusalem and they're praising God. So Jesus commands his disciples, he says, remain in Jerusalem because in a few days the promise is coming. Notice that he does not tell them when exactly it will happen, how this will happen, or how they will know that it's happening. He just tells them, wait here until you have power from on high. It's good to think about the baptism with the Holy Spirit um, as a state of being more than just an experience. Because he, when we are immersed in him, he's the one who gives us power continually to do anything for him. We'll see that faith and obedience to him are keys to receiving. There's no need for us to tarry in Jerusalem. We don't have to go to a particular place in the globe to receive this baptism. But obedience to him, we can. On the same uh, belief that you have with you're born again because you've repented and trust in Christ, so you can know concerning the baptism with the Holy Spirit that it's in trust of his word that you receive through faith. Acts 1, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is talking about the promise of the Father. They follow up with this question. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah, 
it had evidently been emphasized that this was one of the roles of the Messiah was to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so he's talking about the promise of the Father, but they're thinking about something quite different. They're saying, well, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? They want the power. They want uh, to throw off the Roman rule because they were occupied at that time. They were curious to know when Jesus would establish his throne. Okay, Jesus, we believe that you're the Son of God. We believe you've risen from the dead. You are the Messiah. So when are you going to be like the Messiah and and restore the kingdom of Israel? Because that's something the Messiah does. The truth was the kingdom of God was already present and the Holy Spirit would be establishing that kingdom. That would be evidence of the kingdom of God when Jesus said, when they say, look here, look there, the kingdom of God is within you. But the kingdom of God also, so when we say kingdom of God, it's referring to a broad amount of things. So you have the kingdom of God parables. There's something that happens within a person regarding the kingdom of God where the the Holy Spirit comes inside your life. Uh, Then there's also when Jesus actually establishes his throne in Jerusalem, when he has a kingdom and he's ruling all the nations, which will happen. That is the kingdom of God and also the eternal state where there's a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells and God's everlasting kingdom. So they say, when? When is this going to happen? And he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. Do you know that it's God's will for you not to know everything? Sometimes we want to know. We think, if I could just know the answer to my question, everything will be better or fine. Or, I need to know this thing. They wanted to know when. And he said, it's not for you to know when. Full stop. It's not for you to know. We can, uh, and it's like, well, how, how do you respond when God doesn't answer a question the way you want him to? So we ask a question. It may not be the right question. He's gracious to receive that question. But I like that though he did not answer the question how they wanted, they wanted a date and a time, he did not keep them in the dark. He told them about their role and responsibility and that he would enable them to accomplish everything, as we'll see. A lot of those when questions we have, well, when? How long? A lot of times those questions are not answered. Sometimes he will. But many times it's for us to trust him, to entrust our future to him and to say, God, you know what I'm feeling. You know what I'm going through. And I believe that you are in control and you have a plan. I don't need to know what that plan is as long as I'm looking to you and I know that you have it in hand. And we can find great comfort in that without even knowing times and dates. God will always provide enough information for you to fulfill your duty before him so he gives us enough doesn't tell us everything but he gives us enough when it comes to the work of the holy spirit who is uh, the third part of the godhead you have god the father jesus christ god made flesh and then the holy spirit it's not just some force sent out by god but it's uh He has the attributes of God throughout. In the book that we do during um, our discipleship course, it's called Transformational Discipleship, and there's an analogy there that's very useful because we 
sometimes struggle to know the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives once we're born again. Well, how does the Holy Spirit work in my life? And, and there's three different pictures. The first one is someone pulling at the oars, thinking that if they're going to advance, it all depends upon their effort and their sweat. And it, it really all depends upon them, their spiritual growth or their fruitfulness for God. And it's someone, it's such the work of the flesh. You have to do something to receive power from God. Now, the opposite would be the person in a speedboat or a motorboat, kind of kicking back. The only thing they're working on is their tan. And they're like, you know, God's in control. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to exert myself in any way. It'll just happen. God's all powerful and really just not worrying about it, not caring about it. Well, so one is taking control, and the other one's happy to do nothing. The middle ground is a sailboat, where a sailor is going to trim the sails to catch the wind. Dependent upon the wind to supply the power, but they respond to the wind so they can maximize speed. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. He moves, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus compares to wind. Where it's like, how is that tree moving? It's not moving by itself. It doesn't have like muscles to move. No, it's moving because of the wind. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when you receive Christ as your Savior, He begins to move through your life in amazing ways, making you move in a way that's not natural for you. But when we cooperate with Him, just like that sailor who's adjusting the sail, we are able to join and work together. So God's working and we're working with him. You see how it's working together. Now I have this, uh, I actually brought a prop today. Ooh, props are cool. I brought this, uh, does anyone know what this is? Very good, pressure gauge. So I use this to primarily, I have an air compressor at home, and I'll use this to fill my tires to make sure that they're at the right um So I don't like to just check every six months. I'll check every two months or something, especially if uh, I'm noticing like one tire is a bit weird. So um, this is only useful to me when it's actually plugged into my compressor and a hose. I connect it to this side. has a nice little dial. It tells me what PSI. um, And it allows me to do work that I cannot do myself. Can you imagine trying to inflate a tire with lung pressure? Boy, oh boy, that would be interesting. You wouldn't be able to do it. It would be impossible for you. So this is a tool that is only useful to me when it's plugged in and connected to the pneuma, air, right? And the Holy Spirit is holy pneuma. So this is a pneumatic tool, uses air. So the idea is the Holy Spirit He's the one that enables us to do the work he's called us to do. This is made with a very specific purpose, to inflate things. And God's called you to a very specific purpose, to glorify him, perhaps to be an evangelist, to uh, be a teacher, to pray, to, to do all these things that we're called to do. And you cannot do them except the Holy Spirit fill you. We need him. I need him to preach. I cannot preach without him. And we cannot do anything that God's called us to do without him. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that's why 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit is really important because not just um, being saved, but being immersed. And, uh, I mean, you think about it. Jesus is talking to guys who were hiding in, in lock, behind locked doors because of fear. And he's saying, you're going to be my witnesses everywhere. You. They weren't even like witnessing to each other of any courage or valiance, hiding. But he's like, I'm going to change you guys. I want to be changed. Do you? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to have the power of God within you? Not just so you can say, I can do this thing, but to say, God's called me, he's equipped me, and it humbles me to know that I have a relationship with God and I'm useful to God. Verse 8 is really the key verse to the book of Acts. It provides a simple outline for the entire book. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. He works with them in Jerusalem until chapter 7. We see from chapter 8 to chapter 12 um, in Judea and Samaria. And then from chapters 13 to the end, them being witnesses all over the Gentile world to the, the far reaches of Rome. Now, this word witnesses, he says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word witness, it's interesting. It means uh, witness, literal or figurative, by analogy, a martyr or record. So the word used for witness is very similar to the word we use for martyr in its base. And it's translated martyr on three occasions in the New Testament. So that's a witness, that's a testimony of belief, right? That you would die for the sake of Christ. I'm, I would rather die than deny Jesus. That is a witness, that is a testimony of the reality of God. In uh, Revelation 2, 12 and 13, it talks about Antipas, who is his faithful martyr or his faithful witness. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But we know from this passage, he was a faithful witness. And God is the one who enables us to be a faithful witness here, there, and everywhere. He gives us the strength and the power to do that. It's interesting. The world sees power like uh, like a superpower. Like, you know, I can make ice with my hands, or I can uh, fly... Or I can, you just think about any superhero and the things that you can do. It's all about exerting strength for your benefit or the benefit of others. But the strength that Jesus gives is one that can endure suffering and trials and difficulties in weakness. So having the exterior of weakness where Paul has the opportunity to stand up for himself to lie and get out of trouble. Instead, He doesn't. Jesus, he has all the power in the universe beyond. Like, he made it all. And instead of just calling, you know, snapping his fingers and having legions of angels come in to bail him out, or just saying the word and melting people with the words from his mouth, he goes as a lamb to the slaughter through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this power is wielded in a totally different way than how the world sees power. He's like, I'm giving you power to be my witnesses. You are my children. You know, we are God's children, but he wants to use us. And the only way we can be useful is to be connected to him, to be filled with him. Verse 9. 
of Acts chapter 1. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is what is commonly called the ascension of Jesus Christ when he was taken up into heaven. So he was just lifted up from the ground. They're having a conversation. He blesses them and he's gone, you know, behind a cloud. And they're all just like, is what just happened? This, I've never had that happen to anyone I was talking to, where they just lifted off the ground. I almost want to have it happen so I could just feel what they must have felt at that moment. We're like, now remember, Jesus had been appearing to them and leaving. He wasn't dwelling with them after his resurrection in the same way. Like they'd be in a locked room and all of a sudden he's like, peace be unto you, in the midst of them. Somehow just appearing before them. They're like, I mean, that would trip me out. But the fact that he's just lifted up off the ground and they're just staring, staring into the sky. Um, I, I Maybe like when I watched fireworks as a kid on July 4th in the States, we almost all councils have a little firework display and, and we'd be perched on ladders or on the roof because our house was situated in such a way that we were short and the fence was a bit tall. And so we'd get up on the balcony or we'd try to see it. And I was always totally... Uh, looking back on it, a bit obsessed with the grand finale. We just call it, it's like the, the last bit at the end. I mean, uh, as Sydney Siders, you guys have seen plenty of spectacular fireworks. Ours were not quite so spectacular. Um, always looking for the latest thing. But, you know, there's a point with the dogs barking and the smoke and the smell, and you're thinking, like, is this it? What's happened? Is this, is it over? Sometimes you'd be inspired, like awe-inspired, and other times quite underwhelmed by what you saw. But you'd be staring up into the smoke and wondering, is this it? And I think they had very much that same feeling of what's happening now. And suddenly there's these two men in white apparel, angels in a human form, and they say, men of Galilee, why are you staring up into the sky? This same, and I'm, they could have answered that for, I mean, a whole bunch of reasons. But this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. They were used to looking at Jesus. They were used to listening to Jesus. They had related to him on a personal level. And that was going to change. The way they were going to relate to him, though he still is alive and powerful, would be different when the Holy Spirit came. They had been assured that he was alive. This served a great purpose. Because he was seen by eyewitnesses, there was no one that said, you know, oh, he's not. Imagine if that had happened. If the grave had been empty and an angel just said, oh, he's in heaven now. And no one had had the chance to see him, to talk to him, to touch him, to listen to him, to confirm that he is actually alive. So this happened for 40 days. They had 40 days of verifying the fact that Jesus is alive. And then he goes up to heaven. And they say, Jesus, the same way he left, he's coming back. So what was the manner of his leaving? Well, it was sudden and unexpected. So his return will be sudden and unexpected. His leaving was physical and visible. And his return will be physical and visible. He left from the Mount of Olives 
and that's the exact place where he will touch down his feet. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see on the Mount of Olives, there are many graves there where Christians are buried because they, the belief is, traditionally, uh, there's no basis in Scripture for this, but that's where his feet are going to touch down and they'll be the first to see him, that sort of idea. So in Zechariah 14, uh, verse 4, it says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem at the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So then you have the water from, from Jerusalem flowing down and, and purifying the Dead Sea. and It's just really cool. But that's where it will happen. We know where it will happen. We don't know when it will happen. But in the same, this is the early eschatology of the church in days, like last days. This is what they had to go on. Where Jesus is, he's left and he's coming back. And so they, they had that in their mind. Like, all right, let's get to work. And that's something they did. So where is Jesus today if he's gone up into heaven? Well, Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 3.22, he says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So he has assumed his rightful place in heaven as the King of kings and Lord of lords, with everything subject to him. Hebrews 7.25, it says that Jesus is able to save all who come unto God by faith in him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So intercession is someone who is going to uh, speak well on your behalf. So if you say, hey, I'd like a job, and you guys are hiring, can you put in a good word for me with your boss? And they go, oh, yeah, I can do that. That would be interceding on your behalf. So when we pray through the Spirit to the Father, Jesus, he makes intercession for us. And even the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, makes intercession when we don't even have the words to say, we don't know what to say, we're grieving. All we can do is just go, ah, and, and that communicates. The Lord is able to hear that and to respond to it. What's really neat, though, is Jesus, he had all authority before he went up to heaven. Remember in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, before he went and ascended, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We know that when we meet in Christ's name, there he is in the midst. So his presence is here, his spirit is in us, and he is over and above all. All authority, all power, in heaven and on earth. Even the situations of your life that seem impossible, he is in charge of those too. Verse 12 of Acts 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey. I include this to show that they were obedient to what Jesus told them to do. They likely were not comfortable to remain in Jerusalem, but they chose to. A Sabbath day journey is about a thousand meters. 
and they returned from Mount Olives and stayed in Jerusalem as God had commanded them. In due time, we'll see in the next couple weeks, they will receive the promise of the Father, and obedience was a key factor. Could you turn forward, Acts chapter 5, verses 29 through 32. So Peter, at this point, has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gives us some insight to who receives the Spirit of God. Acts 5, 29 through 32. Peter speaking to the religious rulers in Jerusalem. He says, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Pretty cool. So they're actually doing the exact thing that Jesus said they would do. Receive the promise of the Father. Now they're witnesses for him in Jerusalem. He says, we are witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So if we will be a faithful witness unto Christ, we must be obedient to him. That's our part to play. God tells us what we should do, and our role is to submit our will to his and obey him. It's not really complex in a sense. We make it very complex, but it's not. It's very simple. It's kind of like where uh, people question the resurrection from the dead because they couldn't explain it scientifically. Like, well, medically, how is that possible? Well, medically, it's not possible. Scientifically, how is that possible that a a dead body for three days could come back to life? Well, you see, first, there's this, you know, the synapses fire and the the blood starts to flow and, you know, all the, the toxins, you know, weep out suddenly. It's impossible to explain the resurrection of the dead in a medical or in a scientific sense, because it's miraculous. It's not, it's not chained to those processes that we rely upon to explain how things happen. So he doesn't explain the move of the Holy Spirit as far as technically what's happening inside, but you can believe that he will do these things if you obey him. If you obey him, and we read in, in Luke chapter 11 that Uh, If you, being evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So when we ask Him to be baptized and we obey Him, we believe Him, we receive in the same way that you receive salvation. Now let's turn to John, our final verse, John 6, 27 through 29, as we think about the work that God has called us to do. He said, I want you to be my witnesses. That's the work that he called them to do. And it it took on various forms. It it was ministering to widows. It was praying. It was preaching. It was going to places where people had never heard of God before. It was doing miraculous things like healings and, uh, you know, running after chariots and helping Ethiopian, an Ethiopian eunuch understand the words of Isaiah. Just It was very broad, but the Holy Spirit gave the power to do anything that the people of God needed to do. He led them, and he helped them do it. Now, you might be a little underwhelmed 
by this. You're like, all right, what is it? What is the work? I want to know. I want to know what the work is God's called me to do. Because God, I know, God has called you to a work. He's called you to do things for him, to do impossible things for his glory. If we miss this point, we miss everything. If you miss this point, you cannot be born again. And there are people who are born again who are not baptized with the Spirit because they do not believe what we're going to read. So this is what Jesus said, John 6, verse 27. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. People want to do the work of God. But he says, you know what the work of God is? Believe in me, the one sent by God. Actually believe me. Believe I am who I say I am and believe the words that I speak to you. That is fundamental. That is foundational. Without this, we have nothing. If we will do the works of God, we need to believe Jesus and keep believing. We don't earn the right to be born again. We don't earn the right to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to be immersed in His Spirit. We become the right, of, we are given the right, so we receive that by believing in Jesus Christ, the right to become children of God. Unbelief kept the children of Israel from entering into the land of promise. God had a land for them, and He said, here, here's this land, it's a good land, I want you to enter into it. And they stood at the threshold and said, it's too dangerous. No. would rather go back to Egypt. And they did not enter in. And unbelief keeps Christians from entering into the fullness of the Spirit. And I guess it comes back to, do you, do you have a heart? Do you desire to be used by God? Do you want to be useful for God? Do you want to be fruitful in your life? Do you want your life to count? To be, to be profitable? where at the end of it, God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's really cool that we don't have to wait until heaven to hear well done. You can hear well done today if you'll believe, if you will believe him. That's the primary work of God is to believe in Jesus. It may seem boring. It may seem old news but it's revolutionary for everyone who does it. When you actually do it, wow, changes everything. That's the only way to revival, to transformation, to usefulness. So let's not be concerned about the timing, how God is going to do something, but let's decide we want to be in the thick of it. That I want to be obedient to what God's telling me. So, have you been born again through repentance, through trusting in Jesus Christ? So repentance of sin and trusting in the gospel. And then have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Can you say that the fullness of God, you've been immersed in him? And when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, we know we can come to Jesus. He's the one who promised to give us living water. And that's water that when we drink of it, we're never thirsty again. 
And sometimes we can move away from the source. We can start thinking that it depends upon me to do something. And we stop believing. I mean, we believe it up here, but my life can even, like I'm saying, my life does not always show belief in trusting Jesus how I should, looking to Jesus as I should, relying upon him as I need to, and dryness, deadness, coldness is the result. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, consider the words of Christ, the life that he has for you, the spirit that he wants to immerse you in. I've never baptized anyone in water by force before. I'm not going to be, I don't think you can do that. It's something you submit to. And it's the same thing with being baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's not going to force anyone to be immersed in his spirit. But if you want to be, you can be today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you give your spirit to those who obey you. And I pray that you would move us, Lord, you would quicken us to receive all that you would have, that your spirit might have a full, uh, just full unction in our lives and minds. Thank you for the, the death of Christ, how you demonstrated your love for all people. Thank you for the power of the resurrection, that we see his power over sin and death. And thank you for his ascension and those promises the promise of the Father that you've sent. And you said, Lord Jesus, that it was, it was beneficial that you go because then the Holy Spirit could be sent. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive. We would not leave your gifts unopened or unused. But Lord, as you've gifted us, help us to use those and make us more fruitful, Lord, for your glory. Not worrying or wondering about the time or timing or how you're going to do things, but to trust you to believe you. Lord, help us to do that work first, to believe on Jesus whom you have sent. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to encourage one another, to bless your holy name, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.